We invite you, if you would, please open your Bible to the book of Exodus. We're in chapter number 2, and uh, we're central part of what we've been dealing with has been uh, uh, the issue of uh, three words. I think it would be f- safe to say that you can categorize them. And in fact, the first week when we came, we uh, mentioned this. We had a blackboard here, and we wrote down three words. The first word was the word pride, and uh, we made the point, pointing out from the Scripture, that uh, basically we're born with that. Everybody is born with a, a natural kind of pride. You just, um, you know, the book of Proverbs just hammers us with statements about how bad it is. And uh, since we were born sinners, we were born with a heavy dose of it. And uh, um, we can we can get proud a lot about a lot of stuff, but uh, unduly so, obvious, obviously. And the fact is that uh, uh, the Bible indicates of getting rid of it. You know, it, the uh, point was it needs to be laid aside. So uh, realizing from that message that you're born with pride, and God's not happy with pride. In fact, uh, found in the thing I found most fascinating was there's not a single thing in the Bible that references something good about pride. There's not a single reference about it that's good. It's all bad. It's awful. And from God's perspective, it's about as bad as it gets as far as characteristics. The second thing we come to understand was that the Bible teaches that we should be humble. It speaks a great deal, a tremendous amount about humility or being humble or or bowing before the Lord and bowing before uh, authority and so forth. It talks a lot about uh, bowing down. And we started this part of our uh, uh, message in uh, uh, the book of Luke where we were talking about Zacchaeus coming down from the sycamore tree when he came to faith. And if you recall, we started by saying that every person before he's raised up in Christ, he has to come down. And that is, he has to humble himself. Uh, personally, uh, over the years, meeting people who profess faith in Christ that were arrogant, and, and I'm not just talking about a, a, a dose of it, I'm talking about had an arrogance toward God and His Word and everything else, gave evidence they had never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because coming down and the humility that comes with salvation is a key factor in the whole of the Bible's description about a person repenting before God and bowing before Him. And so when you find someone who hadn't bowed down when they came to faith in Christ, you have reason to suspect their salvation is not legitimate. That was the second thing. The third thing we talked about for the believer. The first, everybody is born a sinner and born with pride. Secondly, the Bible exhorts us and commands us to be humble before the Lord and and be humble in general character. The third thing is, it doesn't use the word, but it is the evidence of it's all through Scripture, and that is that every Christian should be broken. Broken. Now, grant you, uh, it's not something many people sign up for. But it is something that if you're going to be used of the Lord in any capacity, uh, he'll probably break your heart before you get to go into where you want to go. Because there's something about uh, man just having this sense that he can do it all himself. It started with people trying to save themselves in the very beginning, and it just goes on. When you get saved, you, you think you can, once you got saved and you experience the grace of God in salvation, you just somehow think you can run it from here on in to the finish line, which is the door of heaven, and you can do it all yourself. And uh, God's not going to let somebody like that try to tell somebody else how they ought to serve God. So the people who are going to help in the work of the ministry, and who are going to be servants of the God of heaven, are going to have to be folks who have been broken from all that. When I was growing up, we had neighbors who had Shetland ponies. And uh, I happen to believe Shetland ponies are the meanest creatures on the face of the earth. Having been bitten, kicked, stomped, and bucked from them, I believe they're meaner than anything. I believe they're demon-possessed. And so what uh, happened was our neighbors had them, and they'd buy them at... uh, Markets, you know, uh, uh, farmers markets type thing. They have these little Shetland ponies, look cute and a beautiful, you know, and they had pictures of people sitting on their backs and all that. And then what happened? These people would buy them and they'd take them to their farm. And because we lived nearby, and I was of that age where we'd try anything once, may not be able to try it a second time, but we'd try it once. And so what we did with these Shetland ponies, we put a saddle on those crazy things, and then we got two bags, burlap sacks, 
full of sand, you know, all that we could lift, and we'd tie it in the middle to the saddle. So you had these burlap sacks, and you had sand bags on each side of this Shetland pony. So what would happen is we would put as much as this Shetland could stand, we'd put that much sand in this, these bags. So here's this Shetland pony. It's trying to walk, and it's going... You know, it can't buck, it can't kick, it couldn't take one leg off the ground because it knows full well if it does, it'll fall over because the weight's too much. So what we do is we put those uh, weights on there until we thought that this thing had submitted, you know, until it submitted its will to our will. So we could rein it, we could change, you know, direction by pulling on the reins of the, of the bridle, uh, we could make it stop, we could do whatever we needed to because now... He's at our mercy. He can't hardly walk. He can hardly stand. But he knows as long as we're in charge, we're probably not going to fall off and we're not going to get ourselves hurt. So he's just going to obey. He'll do what you tell him to do. You can, you can kick him in the, in the flanks with your heels and he'll move forward. And then you can pull on the reins and he'll stop. You can turn it to the right and he'll turn a U-turn and he'll go back the other way. You can turn it to the left and he'll take a U-turn and go that way. He learned very well. So we'd say, okay, let's take off half the sand, half the sand. We'd take the two bags off. Somebody hold the Shetland pony. We'd take half the sand out of each bag and put it back on there. This time he realized he could walk pretty freely. He wasn't so weighted down. He was pretty free to go. So we'd walk around a while. We'd do the same routine, turning him and stopping him and kick him in the flanks, and he'd go, and then he'd stop. We got all that done. And then after we got all that done, we'd take all the sandbags off. And it was always a flip of a coin, who gets to get on him? I lost every time. Every time. It fell my lot. Rick, you get to ride him first. And let me tell you something. The sandbag didn't help a bit. Because Shetlands are, are known for rearing straight up and falling flat back. And that's exactly what this one did. He just so, I mean, he kicked himself up with his front feet and he fell right backward. Didn't have enough sense to know that it's going to hurt him more than me because I'm going to jump off when this thing starts backward. I'm going to, I'm going to be exiting. And he'd fall flat on his back and of course mash the saddle horn into his back and he'd roll over and then when he'd start doing that he'd start kicking and then you had to grab the reins and get him back up, get on him again. And you kept doing that until the Shetland pony learned this is not going to get you anywhere and it's not going to help us get you broken, so you might as well submit. The whole idea is broken with that Shetland was a whole lot different than it is with the Lord. Our breaking the Shetland ponies was to get them where we could ride them and then we could sell them, that is these people who own the farm, they could sell them to people and say they're broken, they're, they're rideable. You can get on them and ride them and they'll be safe for your children and so forth. But to do that... Some of them went through a lot, a lot of pain. Sometimes they'd fall back and fall over before you could get off, and we'd never put our feet in the stirrups. You never want to do that trying to ride a bucking horse. So what we would do is we'd just get on and try to jump off, but occasionally we didn't get off. And he'd roll over on a leg and twist your legs, or he would twist your ankle because he'd get, he'd get all tangled up in his own feet. The point about that is it would cost other people who were trying to help this colt help it to become a rideable animal. Well, God doesn't do that with us because what's happening with us is not so we can be a benefit to Him. It's so we can be most productive as His children. And the case in the Bible setting forth, it's one of those things that all through the Bible there are stories you could pick on and you could pull out and you could learn from that exactly what God did and how He did it. But some of them are somewhat better than others because it, it sort of makes a bigger picture. We have chosen to work with the story, the illustration of Moses, and that's what we've been on for a few weeks. And let me say this up front. When I was uh, growing up, too, we, uh, I loved then uh, to hunt rabbit. Uh, I thought it was, hunting rabbit was this, that was what you were born to do because that's what we did all the time. My father and I, we had beagle dogs, and we ran them. We enjoyed that immensely. I learned something about hunting rabbit from my father that saved me a lot of time and energy. First was, if you had two good beagle dogs, a good dog will almost always bring a rabbit back around to where you are. So you don't have to go chasing the rabbit. 
wherever the rabbit jumped up from, you just stand there. Let the dogs take him around. Let the dogs chase him, barking on his heels. And the rabbit somewhere will come back. But when he comes back, he's not going to be running. He's going to be tiptoeing. He's trying to get back from the place where he started. And all you have to do is stand nearby where that rabbit jumped. Let the dogs bring him back, and you're going to get your prize. You can get your rabbit. Now, with that said, that's the way it works with me in studying Moses. So here's what it is. We're going to say things that I'll get down the road on the life of Moses, and then I'm going to turn around and think, you know, I should go back here and tell you this. Here's another part in this. You should know this part of the story, too. So I'm saying that to tell you up front. I didn't put this in uh, any structural kind of order. I just wrote it down as I studied and read and thought and meditated. I just wrote down the notes. So that's how it's going to look, and that's how it's going to seem. But when we go back and go back around Hodges to get back to another point, be patient. I hope it will be beneficial to go back. What we have in chapter number 2 is the birth of Moses. We've uh, come this far into discussion about it. But look at chapter 2. It starts out, There went out a, or went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife the daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son, and she saw him that he was a godly child, and she hid him three months. I repeat what I told you before, that uh, the Bible indicates that they did this by faith. And I told you, from a biblical standpoint, that requires that they heard this by revelation. So if you read the text of Scripture and, and it says, as does the case in the, the Bible, that he was a goodly child and, and they decided to hide him, you should not take that as a mother who has this loving heart for a child and she just can't give him up because Pharaoh said he's going to kill all the male children and she's just broken about that and so she's going to hide him and do what she... That's not true. That's not true at all. Now, I'm not telling you she didn't love him. I'm sure she did. But that's not the reason she hid him. The reason she hid him is because she was told to do so or otherwise the Bible would be incorrect where it says she did so by faith. You see, you have to have a biblical basis for acting and, and receiving, as it were, by faith something. Faith is not just you believe it's going to, you know, tomorrow you're going to find $10 in the road. You don't have a basis for believing that. And you can believe all you want to, but it ain't going to happen. Oh, not to say somebody won't throw a $10 bill out and you find it and you say, oh, answer prayer. That's not true. It won't be an answer to prayer the way the Bible sets it up. The Bible sets up faith as being something, the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. The evidence in this particular case is God said something, and he indicated that Moses was unique and different, and he indicated to them, you need to hide him. And that's what the Bible would set this verse up for. Then verse number 3, and it says in verse 3, And when she could not longer hide him, she took him, took for him an ark of bulrushes, daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags uh, by the river's brink. And remember, that's where they were throwing all the male babies. They were going to drown them. And it was the typical approach to uh, getting rid of them. And in verse 4, the sister stood afar off to wit or to understand what would be done with him. And then verse number 5, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the marsh or washed herself in the river. And her maidens walked along the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she went or sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the child or the babe wept. And uh, she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then said, to, said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, she steps up, Moses' sister does, and she says, Shall I go and call a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for thee? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. Actually, Moses' mother. In verse 9, the Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away, nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child, nursed it, and the child grew, and she brought him uh, unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she called his name Moses. And she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now that's the gist of the story, but uh, as I mentioned last week, there are two passages of Scripture that when you read a life of Moses, you need to go to in the New Testament. And I gave you a way to remember that. Anybody remember? What were the, first off, what were the two books? What's the first book? Book of Acts. 
Second book, Hebrews. Maybe I need to preach last week's message before I preach tonight's message so we can get this down right. Yeah. And what were the two chapters? We named it after a store. 7 It's Acts 7 and it's Hebrews 11. So go to Acts 7, if you would. Acts chapter 7. I thought I was getting this down on the lowest shelf so you could reach it, but I may have to go to a shelf lower than what I've been working on here. Look at Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, look at, uh, oh, begin, uh, begin in verse 18 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, 18, it says, Till another king arose which knew not Joseph, the same dealt subtly with our kindred. Now this is Stephen teaching, preaching, speaking about the history of the Hebrews. And he says, An evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. And that's a reference in verse 19 of the Pharaoh commanding that they kill the male children. Verse number 20, in which time Moses was born, meaning in the very midst of this Moses was born, was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Now this means, and you need to get uh, mentally the time um, schedule here, uh, this means from the time he was pulled out of the, the Nile River and taken into the palace of uh, Pharaoh, that he was there 40 years. 40 years. 40 long years he lived in the palace. Now, we don't know what access he had uh, to the children of Israel, that is, the slaves of Israel. But we do know that on one occasion, this passage in verse number 23, said it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. We don't know how frequently that happened. The Greek reference doesn't prove that. Sometimes a Greek word will tell you whether it's something that happened once or whether it happened repeatedly. Uh, this one doesn't tell us that it's happened either once or a whole lot of times. What we do know is there was an occasion when he was in his 40s, or at least 40, that he decided he was going to go out and see the rest of the Hebrew family. Now, I said it last time, and I'm convinced it's true. There's only one way he would have kept that kind of attitude toward his brethren. And that would have been because his mother, who was his nurse, kept telling him, you're not an Egyptian. You don't belong to Pharaoh's house. You belong to the Lord. And you belong among all these slaves out there. You're not here because uh, you're a better person. You don't get the palace because you're the best of the Hebrews. You got in here because God spared your life. And God has set you aside to be the deliverer for the slaves of Egypt, the Hebrews. So listen, son, don't you ever get it in your head that you deserve this. You have no right to this apart from the goodness of God. And don't you ever forget, you could have been just as easily the bones eaten by a crocodile in the Nile. But the fact and the reality is that God in His mercy has spared your life. And he has a great calling for your life. Don't you ever forget it. So it came into his heart, came back into his heart, the reality of it, in verse number 23, to go out and visit his brethren, verse 24, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed, and he smote or killed the Egyptian. In verse 25, let you in on a, a key factor in this whole life of Moses. Verse 25 says, For he, that's Moses, supposed his brethren, that's the Hebrews, would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Now the thing is, he has not yet gone to God's university out in the desert. He hasn't been to, he hasn't been to the backside of the desert, you. He hasn't been there yet. But he already knows somehow that he was given to deliver Israel. Knowing that, I believe that his mother told him how the Lord had spoken to them about hiding him. And by faith they did. And so in doing so, I believe that he took it into his heart 
someday I will lead these slaves, these Hebrew brethren, I will lead them out of Egypt. There's only one, one problem with that, and this verse sort of emphasizes that. For he supposed his brethren would have understood that. He thought they knew what he knew. And that's not often the case in the issues of this nature. So God had not taken time to speak to or had not decided it right and appropriate to go down and tell the Hebrews as a group. So what he did do is he told Moses' mother and father. And he said, here's what I'm going to do with your son. I want you to hide him now. And as uh, he comes to be found, I'll take charge from that point forward. And so 40 years he's been in the palace of, uh, of the Egyptian uh, Pharaoh. And now he's come out. He's walked among the Hebrew brethren. And no doubt he's dressed like a, a wealthy Egyptian. You know, he probably has all the pomp and beauty of what the Egyptians and Pharaoh's family wore and the gold and the whole ten yards. He walks out and he sees in this context, as it's repeated in, of course, from Exodus chapter 2, that this Egyptian is hurting and smiting one of his Hebrew brothers. And Moses just walks up and somehow, some way, I'm not sure how he accomplished this, but he killed the guy. And obviously, that was not God's plan, that he killed one Egyptian at a time to get them all free. That would take too long. That was not God's plan. So Moses is working a little bit ahead of God's schedule, and the Israelites are not yet ready to be released. Here's the deal. Why, if God was going to deliver Israel out of the slavery of Egypt, why did he pick on Moses to do it? and have to send him away another 40 years. Brought him 40 years into the palace, and he's going to send him 40 years back on the backside of a desert, and then bring him back for 40 years to work with Israel, getting them out of Egypt and getting them into the wilderness and through it. And even there, he doesn't get all the way through. He died and gets buried on a mountaintop where God only knows where he's buried. How come he did that? Why didn't God just walk in and, and solve the problem and rescue all of Israel and move on with the thing? Why did he, why did he wait all this time? Just remind you, God does not uh, have calendars. God does not work on our timetable. God is infinitely wise in every category of life and existence. God sees the beginning of time to the end of time. And he sees it in effect for everybody. So everything in God's program, it's not like a uh, an airport, um, uh, what you call those guys in the towers, um, uh, air traffic controllers. You know, you've seen these, uh, uh, I hope you have, if you've seen the pictures of uh, air traffic controllers looking at these monitors and all these blinking, you know, you'd say, I'm never flying again, man. They ain't never going to get up there. They're just going everywhere. And these guys got to keep up with them by number and by beeps and the whole ten yards. And you think about that for a moment. And then you think about God in heaven keeping up with all of his people and thinking about making sure everything works out for their good who love the Lord. And you make sure that God's ultimate plans are going to be fulfilled. Now, you go think about that for about an hour and see how many excedrin you need to eat to fit your headache. You talk about a headache. And yet that's exactly what God does all the time. So what he was working on is, is to deliver Israel because the cry of Israel had come up before the Lord and to deliver them was their request. And so he has a son born, puts this son in this home with this two Levites, the father of the Levite tribe and his mothers of the Levite tribe. And I still marvel that uh, Moses had the same birth attachment that Aaron had and Aaron ended up being the high priest and Moses ended up being the captain of the team so uh, he was rightly as good for the position as a high priest as anybody because he was born of a family of Levi but that wasn't what God had in his plan for you see just because somebody comes in a priestly tribe doesn't mean God's going to use them doesn't matter what benefits we have how smart we are God's not looking for smart God's not looking for talent. God created smart and God created talent. He, he doesn't have to look for it. What God looks for is somebody who do what he wants them to do on his timetable and trust him completely in doing it. I don't, he doesn't need us. And if you ever get to the point where you think God needs you, you better enjoy your last breath because you may never get another one. God is, uh, I think, offended by people who think 
they add value to him. We don't add value. We add trouble to him. We're another bleep on the screen. It has to be kept up with. And if we don't do it his way and we get ourselves in a bumbling mess and we sin, he has to come into the rescue and pick us back up, brush us off, clean us up, forgive us, and send us on our way again, only to go down the road a little further and bump our heads or scrape our feet. We are in a mess again. So God doesn't get benefit from us. We're not an asset. We are a liability. The good news is that's not the way he looks at his children. He looks at us as if we are valuable to him to fulfill his will for our good. He wants us to get a benefit out of this, though it's not for all of that. It's the ideal of his ultimately going to get all the glory. And you and I get the benefit of the blessing in the process. Something else to be noted when you go look, if you would, down to verse number Verse 26, and the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove. Now he's talking about two Hebrews in verse 26 of Acts 7. They strove and would have set them at one again. That means uh, he was trying to intercede between two brethren, two Hebrews. And he was trying to get these two brothers who were striving at each other. They were in conflict. They were quarreling and they were, were angry evidently at one another. And he was trying to get them to be one again. He was trying to bring unity in this thing. And uh, this is important because this is the uh, SAT test for the university on the backside of the desert. Let's see how he scores on the SAT, and then we'll see how much work we got to do on the backside of the desert. So the first case was he failed the first one, didn't do well at all of that. He just decided to kill the Egyptian and be done with it and bury his body and hope it wasn't found. And that's what he did. When he comes out the next time to visit his brethren, he meets two of the Hebrews, and they are in conflict. So because they're brothers, he does not choose to kill one of them, whoever was the guilty party. He chooses to reconcile them. He, re- he, d- he chooses to try to get them to come to terms that both of them may have been a little wrong, and both of them need to get right. And so obvious in verse number 26, they strove. And he would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren. Why do ye wrong one to another? Verse 27, But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away. The word thrust carries with it. The idea that was like pushing him out of the way. Now remember, he's an Egyptian in the context of the Hebrews scene. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He probably is well off and... Maybe all the rings and fingers and the whole ten yards. I mean, this guy is dressed like an Egyptian, and we know that because the Bible tells us that when he goes to the backside of the desert. Uh, when he shows up in Midian, he shows up looking like an Egyptian. And uh, that's how the women at uh, the well identified him. There's this Egyptian out there. So the fact is, in this case, this guy pushes him. He pushes him out. He, he shoves him backwards, so to speak thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Now, this is a part of the SAT test that he's going to have to face later, and it was this, and that is um, when somebody says to you, Moses, uh, that you're not the authority, what are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? Now, you can't kill these. These are your brethren, like you kill the Egyptians. So what are you going to do when these guys say, Who made you the boss? You know, uh, uh, it's an amazing thing how children grow up, and they grow up with this concept that uh, uh, mother and father are the boss. And if you try to tell a child who has been instructed that, you know, I'm your boss, mom and dad are your boss, and so uh, you don't listen to anybody else, just when we tell you to do something, you do something. So, And you happen to show up, and this child may be doing something they shouldn't be doing, and you say to them, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. They look at you and say, you're not my boss. You know what the general problem is that there is a matter that there is a a legitimate authority in legitimate places where all of us ought to submit. And we ought to teach our children that. I say to you, if you get down to US 31 and you drive faster than the speed limit and a patrol officer or a city policeman or a county sheriff car drives up with lights on and asks you to pull over, I recommend you pull over. I recommend you speak kindly, respectfully, graciously, and don't argue. 
And don't make it hard on this officer because I can uh, assure you that he's been dealing with other people who may not be as kind and gracious as you are, but you and I, as born-again believers, if indeed we are, ought to submit to a legitimate authority. And if we were breaking the law, if we were speeding, then this law will come down on us, and we need to pay the price, and we ought not argue about it. If we were speeding, we were speeding. And it's not a rocket science. If we were, we were, and if we aren't, we aren't. You know, I've told you before about my incident in East Ridge, Tennessee, when I was uh, Judy and I were married, and I was working at Brock Candy Company, and uh, I went through a school zone, and uh, I. I went that same road every day, and for some reason, a police officer pulled me over and said I was speeding through a, 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 a school zone. And uh, I told my wife I was not speeding. And I said, in the principal thing, I'm not going to pay the ticket. I'm going to go fight it. And I went and fought it. Now, mind you, my stubbornness cost me a whole night at work, which was eight hours of work pay at Brock Candy Company. And I showed up in traffic court in East Ridge, Tennessee, and I had to wait on the docket until he got to me because my intent was to be in and out and back to work. didn't work that way. I got off and got uh, I finally got my case heard about 9 o'clock or something. Lost a whole evening of work, but when they came to me and they said, uh, how do you plead? I said, not guilty. And uh, the, the traffic judge was not accustomed to that. He was accustomed because they had it all in black and white, you know, ticket readouts, and uh, he's not used to that, so I said, not guilty. He said, okay, guilty. He said, excuse me? I said, not guilty. (laughs) He said, the officer pulled you over. You were speeding in in the school zone. I said, no, I wasn't. He said, we have it here. You, You were speeding in a school zone. No, I wasn't. He said, how do you plead that? I said, I go through the same school zone every single day on my way to work, and you can go check the signs. It has a time on it. I came through after the time, not during the time. He said, well, we have a crossing guard who works that thing, and he turned to the clerk and said, "Uh, call up uh, crossing guard number, and he had it off the ticket, and he gave the number, number 43. Call up number 43 and ask them, when do they leave your post? And uh, I heard the conversation. I heard the phone call, and she hit, when do you leave your post? And he turned to the clerk, and he said, he's right. She'd already left when he got a ticket. One of us is wrong. She's either going to get penalized for leaving early, or I'm going to get penalized for going too fast in a school zone. And when they found out she left at, uh, minutes before that, that meant that the time on the sign was um, it was quitting time for her. And it meant that I wasn't under any violation of the law in East Ridge, Tennessee. So in East Ridge, Tennessee, <clears throat> you can be declared innocent, but you still have to pay traffic cost for the court. Now, if I ever run for president, I'm going to change that. Because I don't think that's correct. But I'm not going off another night of work, eight hours of off work, to go down and prove my point. My point of making it is, it's a very simple thing for people to get into a, a set of circumstances whereby you know, the Lord teach you a valuable lesson. And one of them is you, you submit as far as you should submit to legitimate authority. It doesn't mean you plead guilty when you're not guilty. And then that night I was not guilty and I wasn't about to plead guilty. But the fact is that we need to learn to submit to legitimate authority. And in this particular case, there's instances where we get to see that worked out in, in tall fashion. It doesn't come up immediately, but we'll see it. Look then, if the, look if you would at verse number 27. He said, But he that did his neighbor wrong, thrust him with who made thee ruler and judge over us. Verse 28, Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Verse 29, then fled Moses at his saying, or this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. So the passage of Scripture sets up that uh, Moses, in uh, Acts 7's recounting, this is Stephen telling the story, in uh, these instances, the um, matter is that he's recounting 
uh, how all of that happened. So his fleeing from Egypt and going to the backside of the desert in Midian is setting him up for the 40 years of schooling he's going to receive and what we call is a time of brokenness for him. And we'll explain more detail of that in uh, in um, a minute or the next time. But look, if you would, from where you are in chapter 7 of Acts, look to chapter 11 of Hebrews for a moment. Before we close for this evening, notice in chapter 11 of Hebrews, <clears throat> chapter 11, and look, if you would, down, we'll go all the way up to verse number 23. This is Hebrews 11:23. The Bible says, "By faith," and this is an important statement. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. That's the text that I told you about. That testifies to the fact that God had to reveal Himself as this being His will for them to say this happened by faith. It can't happen by faith in a scriptural context apart from the fact God says something. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So God had to say something, and when God said something, it was that I want you to, I want you to hide your son. And the fact is it was done and carried out by his parents, and it was done by faith. And notice the verse, verse 23, because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. That's a great thing about uh, faith. Um, as perfect love casteth out fear, faith does the same thing. If you have God's word on something, then there's no reason for you to fear that something. Now, if you don't have God's certainty about it, then you know all bets are off. But if you have God's word on something... You have absolutely no reason to fear. For instance, when the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, after this the judgment. First off, Romans 5 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus our Lord. That being said, then we don't have to worry in that verse about after this the judgment, because we've already our judgment has already been dealt with. What you concern yourself about that is that you do have an appointment. We all do. And some of us, like Bill Monroe, has been given a guesstimate on the part of the doctor to say, if you do nothing, you got six months. If you do chemo, we'll give you longer than that. Most of us sitting here don't necessarily have that. But we could have it and not know it. You may be sitting here tonight and within you is a ticking time bomb. You don't have a clue about it being there. Or it could be your heart. Uh, I got up the other morning and uh, my blood pressure was 194 over 92. It's an amazing thing about my body. My body is not like your body, so don't get scared. I can work all day and sweat for six, seven, eight hours, come in and take my blood pressure and it'll be 127 over 62. And that's exactly what happened yesterday. I worked hard all day, sweated like crazy, was hot, was tired, was weary. I was, uh, again, about to drop when the day came to an end. Took my blood pressure. Perfect. Now, the moral of the story is, in order for me to stay alive, i got to work harder. I mean a lot harder. i got to work every day hard. i got to sweat every day. And I'm not sure I can pull that off. But the thing about it is, I know I have an appointment with death and dying. What takes the fear away from that is for the Bible to say to me, to be absent from the body is to be present for the Lord or with the Lord for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. I take great confidence in John chapter 11 and verse 25, I believe, where the Lord says that he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. You see, I believe that people live after they die. And I believe that by simple childlike faith because the Bible says that. And I believe my father and mother who went to be with the Lord years ago and uh, Judy's mother and father who have gone to be with the Lord before her, uh, 
We have great confidence in their placing their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And that right this minute, they're alive. I, I say it often in funerals, and I urge you to think it. They're not was, they are is people. My parents are right this moment, this very second, alive and well. Oh, they may not have their bodies. I believe they're in spirit, but they're real. And I say to you, when you take God at his word and you have faith in that, it takes all the fear away. I have no fear in dying. I, I'm not looking forward to the fact of leaving my wife, my family, my, my friends, my church people. I'm not excited about the leaving part of it. But I absolutely don't fear the dying part of it. And I believe the Bible is designed by that means. I think it thrusts that to us and pushes us to it. And it simply says, do you believe the Lord and trust Him? When He said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again, and I'll receive you unto myself, but where I am, there you can be also. I believe Him. I take Him at His word. I rest in that. And I believe every Christian ought to rest in that. And I've said it a multitude of times from this pulpit, I don't believe any Christian ought to have a fear of death and dying. I believe we ought to embrace it as the plan that God has for us in a conclusion to the life He's given us. I don't believe you ought to waste your life. I believe you ought to use it wisely. And you ought to, every day you live, you ought to be grateful for it. And you ought to thank God for it. And you ought to live it to its fullest. But every bit of that fullness ought to bring honor and glory to Him. And it ought to sort of spill over into the lives of people around you. That they recognize that you have a, a, a legitimate, calming faith in what's going to happen when this thing's all over. And I say to you, in this case, with this business of it being by faith, these people were not afraid of the king's command. The king had said to all his uh, Hebrew midwives, he'd said to them, Look, when you come in to deliver the Hebrew women of their children, if it's a male, you kill him. If it's a female, let her live. And uh, remember, Moses was born during this time frame under this decree of the Pharaoh. So what happens is, God in his uh, wisdom, working in the hearts of the midwives, the Bible says they feared God. And they did the same thing that Moses' parents did. They feared God more than they feared the king. Because they did that, they would not kill the male children. They just simply gave an illustration or an explanation, and there's no way you or I can disprove it. And they said, when we arrive, they're too active, they're too energetic, and they already have the babies out. They're on the stools, and the babies are here, they're coming, and we couldn't do anything about it. We don't know if that's true or not. We can't tell that. And, and if they were lying about it, it's an amazing thing that God would have blessed it because the Bible says about those midwives that they kept house. Indicate they had children. And God let them have children. And God blessed them and provided for them. How and all that works, I don't understand that. And I wouldn't stand up here and try to explain it and try to pretend I do. I don't understand that. I just know this. The Bible says they feared God just like Moses' parents feared God, and they did not fear the command of the king. I say this to you. You ought never let any human being cause you to fear so much that person against fearing what God says you should do. For instance, if I ever get to a point where uh, I'm told I could not preach the Bible, I would preach the Bible. They'd have to haul me away because I'm not going to give to that. And I don't believe the Bible encourages me to do that. I believe, in fact, the next time we're together, I'll show you the four positions that are most often struck about um, how people look at what laws they obey and which ones they don't and so forth. I believe the law of the land is to be obeyed as long as it does not go contrary to what God specifically says. When God says something specific, then my responsibility is to obey God. If it's gray or shaded or it's un uncertain about where it leads, directs, or whatever, there can be contention and debate about that. But when God speaks and it's clear what God wants, 
then my responsibility is to obey God. Just like Moses and his parents and the midwives, all of them fearing God more than they feared the king. But they could, the point I made about it all is you need to get that same point. You need to make up your mind early. Don't wait till you're faced with a decision. Know what the Bible says and make your judgment about who you're going to obey and how far you're going to go and, and what you won't obey of what the law says. I would not recommend any woman have an abortion. I know the law says you can. I believe the Bible says you shouldn't. I believe there are things the Bible says about uh, drugs. I was telling my son today, uh, it's an interesting thing, and maybe you've heard this. These people who have the drug problem in, in Indiana, especially Indiana has seemingly a big one of an epidemic of, of drug addiction and shooting themselves up and so forth. It's an amazing thing that some doctor found out that the livers of people who overdose and die could be extracted from these people and they could put them in people who are waiting for liver transplants and these people would just flourish. To do that, though, they had to... Uh, I guess in order to get a transplant, they had to give them, by injection, hepatitis C. So when they give them hepatitis C, they give them medicine to cure them of that. Then they remove the liver they have in their body and put the new liver in. And these people have, quote, at this point, lived happily ever after. So all the drug addicts who died of overdoses... They, uh, and especially those that families give over to autopsies or, or um, donating body parts, they're taking their livers out and replacing them in people who are on liver transplant waiting lists. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. One doctor was asked, what do you do with them if they, nobody signs up for them and they don't, 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 don't donate them? He said, we throw them in a scrap pile. That's exactly his statement. They said, wait a minute, you mean if these livers were not donated to these people, you, you would just throw them in a, in a garbage thing? He said, yes, the kind that you have to have specially picked up, but not, not your garbage can out in the back of a business, but these uh, medical pickup trash bins. We just cut the liver out and throw it down in there. So one doctor somewhere along the way found out you could take them and you could use them. Now, look, I, I, I've got a lot of feelings about that whole thing about the addiction point. I don't think the answer is giving people more drugs to get them off of it. I don't think that's the answer. There's got to be a better way, and I know there is in Christ. But I think we have to be careful that in our society, God's people have a way of getting inducted or seduced or deceived into buying into ideas that the Bible would condemn. I say to you, as I said this morning, don't be tricked by the world's approach. Uh, they can get you thinking in terms of which you thought you were right on track, only to find out down the road this leads to a dead end and a dumb end. You don't want to get caught on a dead end or a dumb end. You don't want to get there. In the case with Moses, I'm amazed of what God has done in his life to the point where we are, and I'm amazed yet further when I read all that will happen with him and what God does with him. Next week we'll pick up with that and I'll give you the point about these four attitudes that people take in dealing with the issue of obeying the Pharaoh's commands. We'll translate it to what we do if the President of the United States says something, what you and I would do about it. I hope you'll be here with us when we do. Let's bow our heads in prayer, and you may be on your way, and Brother Mike will not have any music. So I'll ask if you would stand with me, please, and let's have a word of prayer, and you can be on your way home. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for your goodness, your grace to us. And Father, we thank you for the life of Moses and the blessing that it has been for us to review his life that you've recorded for us. And, Father, we're thankful that there are things in his story that you've put in your book will help us to understand more fully how you operate and function and how you take people like Moses and you spare their lives 
And then you groom them by your grace and use them to impact the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Moses was a great man any way you cut this story. And as we further get to know more about him and understand the brokenness that you took him through, he becomes even more exciting. I pray you'll help us to be a people of brokenness. Help us to be people of humility. But please deliver us from any attitude of pride. Remind us that that's something that you hate deeply and condemn frequently. And Father, I pray that you would use us, and if it takes breaking us to be usable and to be more effective in our being used, I pray you'd break us. And help us, Father, I pray, to walk with you and live for you and die to self and to sin. Help us to abstain from every appearance of evil. Help us to walk circumspectly before a dying and dead world. Help us, Father, to be accounted among those who know the Lord, and may it be obvious by our actions, our deeds, and our words. And may the people around us perceive that we've been with the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this evening that there's someone or others more than one in this building who have never trusted Christ, and they're uncertain of their future in that regard. I pray, Father, as we wait around the front here, if there's someone who needs to know Christ, that we might have the privilege of introducing them to him this evening, him or her, that they may know Christ and be certain of their relationship with him for the work that Christ has accomplished on the cross in his death and his resurrection and his presence seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for those who believe. I pray you'll bless the truths we've heard today in our Sunday school hour, our worship service, and now the evening service. And remind us that we're accountable for truth as we would be held accountable for those investments of financial good we have in this world. Help us, Father, to take the truth and live it out in our own lives and then be willing to share it with other people. I pray you'd use us for your glory this week. Thank you for all of our members and friends of the ministry and our guests this evening. pray your blessing upon them, and I pray you'll be glorified in their lives likewise. Now guide and direct as we go and pray that you'll be glorified by not only our dismissal and our arriving home safely, but the work before us for the week. I pray that we can glorify you in all aspects of that. And I pray people will see Christ in us for the light that we let shine. In his name we pray. Amen.